0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, we're beginning a new preaching series today. Uh, For the next three months or so, uh, we're going to be working our way through 1 Peter. Today I'm going to do the best I can to just try to introduce a couple of concepts that show up in this book. Uh, and, and one theme in particular that I think gives us a good grid or framework for reading the entire book. Uh, I have always been drawn uh, to Peter, like as a person, which I'm sure many of, of you have. It's, it's hard to miss him, because when you read through the accounts of Jesus' life, Peter, as often as he can, gets himself to center stage, it seems. Uh, it's just kind of his personality, you know. So, uh, like he's the one that walked on the water. Like he's the only one that even tried to get out and walk on the water. He, he's ambitious like that. He's impulsive like that. And he did it. He, like, was out, and then, he, you know, he fell in. That's Peter. At a very critical moment when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do you guys say that I am? Peter's the one that steps up. He's the one that speaks. He says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And everybody's, oh, wow, wow. Peter was right about that. But then six verses later, like he nails it. But then six verses later, he's pulling Jesus aside and he's, the text says, he is rebuking him. You know, because Jesus had been talking about what was to come. That he was going to be handed over and crucified. And as Peter's rebuking Jesus, Jesus turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan. You, you, are, you do not have your mind set on the things of God, but I mean, on the, yeah, but rather on the things of man it's Peter. He's up and down. He has moments of greatness and he has moments of, of great failure. When most of us think about Peter, that's the Peter we're thinking of the, the disciple of Jesus with the 12 and the inner circle of the three, the up and down guy, that Peter. But there's another version of Peter. There's a version that we see after the resurrection. We see it in the book of Acts, and this is Peter. The apostle now, it's the same guy, but he's, he's not the same. For example, in Acts 10, Peter finds himself at the house of a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius is a, a commander in the Roman army. All right, now, you just have to remember, these are the people that Peter wanted to overthrow not very long ago, that he wanted to conquer, to get rid of, or to rule over. What's he doing there? Well, God had come to Cornelius and, and visited him, and he told him, hey, I'm sending a guy named Peter to you. And then God visits Peter in a dream and leads him to Cornelius' house. And so Peter is going there in obedience, but not sure what is going on, because again, this has got to be so incredibly difficult for him. It's against the grain of everything that he's believed and been taught growing up. And he… Basically, says that when he gets there, the first thing he says when he gets to the house is he says to Cornelius and his family, he "says you guys, listen, you guys know that it's like unlawful for a Jewish man such as myself to associate or even visit someone of another nation." See, Peter has in him this I don't know nationalistic, ethnic pride that he thinks is somehow woven into his religious beliefs. But, he's there in obedience. And so he says to them, look, here's the deal. I've told you how I feel, but God has told me to come here. And in fact, God has shown me that I'm not to think of anyone as common or unclean. Not any person anywhere. I'm not to think of them in that way anymore. I mean, it is a a radical transformation in how he thinks about himself, how he views others how he understands God's mission on earth. And so Peter begins to preach to them, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them like it's unmistakable. There's nothing Peter can do about it. It's, just, it's happening up in here in Cornelius' house. And so Peter just is like, okay, I guess we're going to like baptize a bunch of Gentiles today. And he does it. And then he like defends it before the Jerusalem council. This is, this is not the same Peter. This is a radically changed man. This is the Peter, the apostle. This is who writes the letter that we're beginning to look at. And he says it in verse 1. He says, hey, guess who's writing this? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We are reading the words of a changed man Peter's mind is no longer on the things of man, not on the kinds of power and and glories and treasures that fade. His mind is on the things of God, what he calls in verse 4 an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He's still ambitious, but for another kind of kingdom. That's the shift. That's the shift that happened to Peter. That's the difference between the old Peter and the new Peter. That's the shift he's writing this letter to help us make. He writes this letter so that we might be radically transformed in the way that we view ourselves and others and how we understand the mission of God and our part in it. Much of, um, I think, much of our anxiety, much of our fear, our anger, our complacency— that stuff. I, I think much of that has to do with the fact that our minds are on, actually, the things of, of man. Just things like power and control and greed and reputation and success and that kind of stuff. We have delusions of these things. And it's really hard for us to sort out. It's hard to know if we're trying to build our own little kingdoms because so much of our faith is just entangled in our own cultural aspirations, and values. It really is difficult to figure out what's what. But you know when it gets clear? You know when things really come clear? Like what you really believe, what you're really about? When there's persecution and suffering. That, it just has a way of making things really clear. When, like, when being a Christian is no longer advantageous socially or politically or in your workplace. In fact, it might hurt you. Like when people think less of you or ridicule you because of your convictions. When the brokenness of the world really does hit home, like you experience sickness, injustice, death of people that are close to you. Like when these things happen, when persecution and suffering happens in any degree, it just has a way of clarifying, right? The the fading treasures of this world are exposed for what they are and it causes us to turn our eyes to something bigger. To set our minds on something beyond this world, like the love of God and his kingdom come. That's the shift. It's a different way of thinking about who we are and why we're here. And what Peter's going to say, and I'll put it this way, that the Christian life, like following Jesus, requires us to make this shift. It's not like an optional thing for super Christians. There's, there's no such thing. There's just people who follow Jesus, and they have to make this shift. So, what is, what is the shift? How are we supposed to think about our lives here? How, how do we follow Jesus in a city like Austin? Well, the grid that I want to give you is, is Peter's way, I think, of, of seeing life in this world. Peter envisions life in this world as a, a journey home. He would envision us and encourage us to think about ourselves as exiles. That's how he addresses us in the letter in verse 1. He tells us who he is, and then he says, and who he's writing to, to the elect exiles. This is the shift. This is how we're supposed to see ourselves, exiles. And so two, two questions we're going to look at today. What does it mean to be an exile? And, and how do we relate to the world from that place? What, what, like how do, what are we supposed to do here as exiles. All right, first question. What does it mean to be an exile? Again, just look at verse 1. So, he, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all largely what we would call modern-day Turkey today. What does it mean to be an exile? One translation says, to those residing as aliens— and I think, that, I think that gets closer to the meaning of what Peter's saying. He wants us to think of ourselves as exiles, as, as resident aliens. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, a, a resident alien is just simply someone who lives in a country that's not their homeland. And so in terms of Christian faith, it just means that your faith and your identity means that you, you live here, but you're not a tourist, you're not detached in that way. You're not just sightseeing and tasting the food. You have a job, most of you. You're like a meaningful part of society. You know the language. You're not, you're not detached like a tourist. You're a resident. But you're not a citizen here either. You have a different home country. You're not fully assimilated into the culture. That's what it means to be a resident alien. You're here. You're meaningfully connected to this place, but it's not not home. Your citizenship is somewhere else. Uh, This image is is deeply rooted in the historic identity of God's people throughout the Old Testament. This is one of the cool things about this letter. There's just tons and tons of references and allusions to Old Testament uh, symbols and history. Uh, This, and Peter makes it explicit here just by this little word, the dispersion. And he's very intentional when he says that to the elect exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora. This is the common term used to describe the Gentiles who were scattered all over the world after their captivity in 587 BC. There's no no quiz. You don't need to know that date. Uh, But make make the long story short, Israel had disobeyed over and over and over and over and over like for centuries. And so God raises up Babylon as part of their consequence to take them captive. They are conquered. They are removed from their land. They're forcibly, forced to live in Babylon. And listen, exile, this exile was horrific. I mean, Jeremiah wept at the consequences of the exile, the prophet Jeremiah. You have to just imagine what it would be like. It's a stripping away of your home, of everything about home. So they're, they're displaced. The songs they used to sing, the games they used to play, none of that exists. Like, imagine living in a world without football or basketball. I mean, some of you do already, but... You know, their kids would grow up learning that, a different language than their native tongue. They would grow up learning to appreciate and love and aspire to things that weren't part of their culture. How? I mean, it was devastating. Exile is... Awful. And this is what happened to them. And Peter is, is taking this term that was used for the Old Testament covenant people of God, and now he's applying it here to Jewish and Gentile Christians alike who've just, who live everywhere. And the image is full of meaning, but um, I just want to try to get to the heart of it today. We're going to work out lots and lots of specifics of this thing as we go. But I think the essence of what Peter is saying is this. This is not your home. The essence of what it means that you're in exile is that this, Austin, Texas, America, Earth, is not your home. The Christians that Peter wrote to were going through hard times. We'll see plenty of that. Because their, their faith in Jesus meant for them that they were increasingly being marginalized and alienated in their own culture. Some of them were being persecuted. They had, there was physical harm. And it was just totally disorienting. It, was, it felt awful. And I think if, if, uh, if you read these words from Peter and you take them to yourself, and Peter is saying, You are like this, you are an exile, sometimes it's hard to grasp. I mean, if, especially if you grew up here. Like if you didn't grow up in America, well, then you have a better sense of what Peter's talking about here. Uh, even some of you grew up on the East Coast and the West Coast and the Midwest, and Texas is, is not home. It's, it's great, but it's not home. Right? And you, you can sort of sense what that's like. Not me. I, like, I was born in West Texas, spent most of my life in Texas. I've been in some other places, but Texas is the best place. And Austin, if you want my vote, is the best part of Texas. I, I love everything about this place. I've been here for almost, or for the better part of 17 years. And so just like the landscape, the coffee, the tacos, the music, the entrepreneurial spirit, I love all of that. I feel totally at home in Texas. I was made for Texas. Texas forever. (laughs) So when Peter addresses me as an exile, I don't, I don't probably feel like he intends me to feel I don't feel like an exile I feel like a native but I am an exile that's what he's trying to say look this stuff is hard to sort out you're so enculturated this is the reality it's not a coping mechanism it's the reality you are an exile here this is not your home so let's think about that for a minute what is what's home 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 is where the heart is. Uh, a couple of months ago, I went to Guatemala City. I love Guatemala. I love the people. I love what God is doing there. Every time I go there, I want to stay longer. One time I asked Todd and Kendall if, if I could take a leave for like a year or two. And they were like, no, you have a job here. So most of you would not even know I was gone. Um, but Guatemala's not home. And here's how I know that. The first hint comes when I get to the Houston airport on the way back. I get into the Houston airport, and I just see all of this food and drink that I'm familiar with and I can pronounce, and I know what's in it. And, I mean, and what's in it is a bunch of genetically modified stuff that's going to kill me, but it's, it's mine. It's like what I'm used to. So my tastes are tuned to, I want it. It's airport food, but I want it. It's home, you know? But, but that's just the beginning sort of wave. And when it really hits home that I'm home is later that night when I take a shower. Like a hot shower with… And I don't have to wear like shoes in there I just It's just a shower And then I get into my bed My bed oh, My bed I love my bed like, We've been married 21 years And at some point you start to realize Hey we spend a lot of time in this thing Let's get this right Let's figure this out And not too long ago We, we, like, we got the mothership of beds King size Casper It's, just, it's, it's everything the commercial says it is when I, when I get in my bed, it's like it knew I was coming, and it's been preparing a place just for me. I get in there, and it just, man, it just fits. And it's not just because Guatemala beds are bad. I mean, I've been in nice hotels with luxury beds. It's, they're still not home. When I get in my bed, th- oh, my bed makes me feel like I belong, you know? I'm home. That, that feeling, when you've been away, and you come home, and you get in your bed— that's home. Tim Keller puts it this way. He just says, home is where everything fits. And Peter is saying, this can't possibly be your home. Because ultimate, real home is where everything fits, where, where the deepest cravings of your soul, the, the desires and your longings of your soul are met perfectly. God fits them. Complete rest, complete joy, complete peace. That's the home we were made for and this is not it. You will not find that here. If you, if you think this world is all there is, which, which is functionally how we live sometimes, but if you think that, that this is all there is, then you will constantly be looking for sources of identity and purpose in this world and you just won't find them it'll be like drinking salt water for the rest of your life there'll be a temporary satisfaction but then you'll just be left thirstier than you were before that's what peter's saying this this world will not satisfy it doesn't fit my goodness there's there's death and racism and injustice and suffering in this world it's not home we're not citizens here we're exiles I watched an interview this week with Richard Spencer, who is uh, one of the voices or leaders of the alt-right movement. He's very particular about saying that he's not a white supremacist. Those are different things in his mind. Uh, White supremacy would mean, according to him, that you want to rule over other races, and he doesn't want to rule over over other races. He just wants to get rid of them. It's different. And uh, so the interviewer was really pressing him on this. Asking him, "Well, you're not a white—you're not a white supremacist. How could that possibly be?" And he's really pressing on him, and Richard backs up. He says, "Listen, I'm an identitarian. I don't think that's a real word. I, I looked it up. I couldn't find it, but that's that's his word. I'm an identitarian." And he says, "Identity is at the heart of my ideology, and foundational to my identity is my race." I mean, when you when you watch the interview, you just, you don't know whether you're supposed to throw something or cry pray, maybe all of it at the same time but if you're honest, you also start asking yourself, well what is is foundational to my identity, like what am I about your race matters your family matters your work matters your reputation matters that all matters, it's part of who you are But what is the fundamental thing about you? See, Christians are identitarians too. We know it's not a word, but it's still what we are. Identity is at the heart of our ideology. But the foundation of our identity lies beyond this world. We belong to Christ who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Waiting until that day when all nations will be put subject under his feet and he will rule and he will make everything right. Everything will fit. We belong to him. Our hope is in him. His kingdom come. That's fundamentally who we are. As it relates to this world, we're exiles. We live here. We're committed to this place in some way. We work for the good of this place, but we are not sourcing our identity here. Peter tells us where our identity comes from. I want you to notice in verse 1, he doesn't just say to the exiles. And some of you thought, I was just trying to skip over that other word. Nope, saving it for right now. To the elect exiles. That's who Peter says we are. We're elect exiles. This is talking about how we came to know God. How is it that we have become now the people of God? Well, it's because God has chosen us. Just as He chose Abraham, and just as He chose Israel, not not because of anything on their part, because of His own mercy and grace, God has chosen us. And we will not plumb the depths of this wonderful doctrine today. Neither will you do that in your GCs this week, FYI. Don't derail your GC on an election debate. It's not a debate in the Scriptures. It's assumed. It's it's not debated. It's celebrated. When when, when the Scriptures talk about election, it is to highlight the sheer mercy and grace of God and to turn our attention to His love and His faithfulness toward His people. That's it. That's the purpose of it. That's what Peter intends for us to do here. So, uh, briefly… All of verse 2 is about this word, elect. It it describes it in very Trinitarian form. He says, you are elect, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This doesn't mean that God simply knows what's going to happen, that he could see that this would be the case. Uh, The word means to know, but in the way that the Bible uses it, to know intimately. When God says he chose Abraham, it's translated, he knew him. And so the idea of God's foreknowledge is to say he has set his affections upon you. You are objects of his mercy and grace and unconditional love and steadfast faithfulness. This is the most important thing about you. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the word sanctify just means to set apart. And so Peter is saying you have been set apart for a purpose, just as Israel was set apart to be a blessing to the nations, and through them one would come who bring blessing to the whole world. You are now swept up in that purpose. You have been set apart by the Spirit of God. You are not here on accident. It's, it's not as if Jesus died and rose and ascended to the he- heavens, and was like, all right, I'm here. And God was like, well, where's everybody? And like, ah, I know I forgot something. It's not like that at all, right? The the plan all along was to leave us here. He redeemed us and left us here. He's going to come back and gather us, but we are left here on purpose. And Jesus, the, the night before he died, he was praying. He says, God, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. I'm sending them into the world. Before he ascended to heaven, he was looking at the disciples and he said, listen, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. He'd already given them the mission, but he said, don't try that before he comes. Don't do anything, Peter. And when the Spirit comes, you'll receive power. Then you'll be my witnesses. And so the Spirit's work is to set us apart and and to empower us for the mission of God. We were chosen for this. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is just Old Testament language for atonement, which means to be forgiven and to cleanse of your sin. Jesus was offered up as an atoning sacrifice. His blood was shed, sprinkled, so that we can live for God. Uh, This is what Peter says in in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. This is what we were made for, to be brought to God, to have fellowship with God. He is home. He is life. We're not just exiles. We're exiles according to God's choosing. So, typically when we think about exiles or refugees, people have been displaced. It's because they've been rejected. And Peter's saying, no, this is not the main meaning of what it means to be an exile. It's not because you've been rejected by men, but because you've been chosen by God. All right, we are exiles in this world and by God's choosing, and so let's get to it. Why did God send us here? What is it we're supposed to do? How do Christians who think of themselves as exiles relate to the world around them? So when we talk about um, what we're supposed to do, we're talking about things like calling and purpose and mission, and I think Christians have always wrestled with how how to relate to the world around them. Some have isolated from culture. Uh, Todd and I took a class a few years ago called On the Desert Fathers. These are the third century monks who literally just isolated to the desert. Right. So some, some have decided, look, the way to relate to culture is to get away from it. It's bad. Some have totally assimilated, conformed to the culture. This is really where a lot of our mainline liberal Protestant denominations stand today. They are far more formed by the culture than they are the scriptures. They conform, they're assimilated totally. Some have sought to conquer culture. This is like the old Peter. This was full scale with Constantine, but I think it's also the spirit that, that drove the sort of religious right movement of our day. Let's rule this thing. Let's take over the culture. Well, We've seen all of those and none of them work out very well. And so what's the answer for Christians? It's not isolation. It's not assimilation. It's not to conquer. What is it? Well, to use Jesus' phrase, it's to be salt and light. There's lots of other phrases. Uh, Hunter talks about faithful presence. I really like that phrase. But salt and light. Jesus used that one. Let's use that This is what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? So right after he's talking about persecution, how we're going to be persecuted, which is what's happening to these people, he then says, you're you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So let your light shine before men so that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And Peter is just picking this right back up. So in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, which is the other part that was read, this is what Peter's saying. This is how we should live our lives. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, resident aliens, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Let, Let your light shine so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's whole orientation about how we're supposed to live our lives here is to look to that day when Jesus will come back and align our lives accordingly. To live as his people in our conduct. To bear witness to his life, death, resurrection, and return. So that when people see our good deeds, they will glorify God. And I want you to see two things happen to people who live as salt and light. Both things happen. Like simultaneously. One, You'll be misunderstood They'll speak evil Or speak against you as evildoers You'll be misunderstood You will probably offend some people People will think you're strange People will think you're dangerous If you live as salt and light So that's going to happen And all of the you know, non-confrontational people Are just squirming right now Some of you are like, good, I'm doing it right I'm offending all kinds of people Okay, So it's both, not just one the other one is that people will be drawn to God. Like you're strange, but eh, kind of like you. It's a little bit attractive this way that you live. So they'll see your good deeds. They'll see the beauty and the wisdom of God in your life. And they'll come to faith in Jesus. Both things will be happening. If you're truly living out of, of your identity and you're being salt and light, both things are going to be going on in your life. You're going to be misunderstood by some. And, and other people will find you attractive. They'll find God attractive in you. Uh, We're going to work that out, and and Peter's going to work that out in just so many practical ways of what it means to live like this here. Uh, Let me just kind of give you one general way of thinking about it, and that is this. Peter is not necessarily asking you to do something different. Like, you don't have to move overseas to do this. He's not even asking you to do more than you already do. I think what Peter's asking you to do is to do what you already do with more gospel intentionality. Like, just be mindful of the fact that you don't belong here, and that changes the way that you interact with the people around you. Notice he says, he's talking about your life among the Gentiles, that is, in the culture, among your neighbors and co-workers and friends and family, among people who don't believe the same things that you believe. And when you do that, he says, listen, when you do that, the desires of your flesh are going to wage war against that kind of living. Which is just to say, the desires to be right, to prove yourself, to self-protect, to be self-reliant, to have little fits of anger and rage, all of that kind of stuff, that's going to be working its way into your life. And if you live that way, it's just indistinguishable. There's, it's hard to tell that you belong to another place. It's just like, well, everybody does that. So be mindful of the fact that these things are waging war against your soul. Don't give in to them. Abstain from them. Be mindful, be cautious, be vigilant in these things. And then Peter is saying, think about who you are and let that that motivate you to love, to service, and to good deeds. Be mindful of the people around you, their story, their needs. Listen well. Just engage with people, not as someone who's like a tourist who's detached and not have someone who's totally assimilated and just approves of everything going on in their life, engage with people in the way that Jesus engaged with us, which is full of grace and full of truth. If you do that, if you bring truth and grace, you know what's going to happen? People will be offended, and people will be drawn to faith in Christ. Jesus is, of course, the ultimate exile. Exile the ultimate sojourner, an alien. The scriptures say that he left home, like did not consider home a place to be held on to, but made himself low. And he became a human, which is incredibly condescending, but it's not even like he became a king. He took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. No one knew as deeply as Jesus did what it meant to feel not at home but he came here and he engaged meaningfully he, he, he lived his life for the good of others and though many people were offended I mean he came to his own people but his own people rejected him many people were offended by him enraged by him I and mean, they, they killed him but also many people found him beautiful and wonderful and wise and gave their lives up for him he's the ultimate exile the ultimate salt and light do you ever feel like you're just sort of wandering through the world you're not sure if you're in the right job or the right neighborhood or the right city you got the right boyfriend or girlfriend if, you have, if you're married you have the right spouse no, that's not a question did you ever feel that? Just con- I mean, we live in a world of options and comparison, and so we're just constantly wondering, like, are we in the right spot? And this is what Peter's saying, is stop, stop thinking about that. You are where you are. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're there for a purpose. It doesn't mean you're locked in, you have to stay there forever, but don't become paralyzed by wondering if it's, it's where you should be. Yes, it's where you are. And where you are is where God has you. You are to be salt and light in that place. It's funny how people who just stop freaking out about it and and, and don't live as consumers and and begin to give themselves to others, it's funny how God ends up taking those people kind of where they need to be. How will we do this? I mean, how, how will we remember this and live this way? It's so hard. And I'll just leave you with Peter's final words in this greeting. He's already said, you're, you're elect exiles by God's choosing. And then he ends this way. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You're going to need like multiples of grace and peace to live this way. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.